This morning we'll continue in our summer series, uh, Joy Complete, a study of Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. And I can't help uh, but think with a title like Joy Complete and even with the content of this letter and, and even things like uh, our singing this morning, this, uh, this idea of, of joy that Paul puts forward, and you'll see some of it in our passage today from the end of chapter 2, kind of chafes at our normal sensibilities about uh, what joy is and how we have it, uh, that we can somehow sing about joy um, e- even when we're not joyful. That Sometimes that feels like forcing it, but uh, I think Paul uh, would, would think a little otherwise, that, that joy is, is possible not only in spite of of difficulty or pain or whatever whatever difficulty or pain you're in, um, but that joy can actually be found exactly in that, in the midst of that. So I'm going to invite Sarah up to read our passage from the end of chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be encouraged by hearing about you. I have no one like him. He is a person who genuinely cares about your well-being. All the others put their own business ahead of Jesus Christ's business. You know his character, how he labors with me for the gospel like a son works for his father. So he is the one that I hope to send out soon as I find out how things turn out here for me. I trust in the Lord that I will also visit you soon. I think it's also necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he is your representative who serves my needs. He misses you all, and he was upset because you heard he was sick. In fact, he was so sick he nearly died. But God had mercy on him, and Not just on him, but also on me, because his death would have caused me great sorrow. Therefore, I'm sending him immediately, so that when you see him again, you can be glad, and I won't worry. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and show great respect for people like him. He risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ. And he did this to make up for the help you couldn't give me. This is the word of the Lord. You guys pray with me. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you open it up to us by your spirit. Uh, Open our hearts and our minds that we might hear from you. Uh, Let us make space uh, that you might speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So this this morning we get the end of this chapter. And uh, in some sense these chapters are a little artificial, uh, how they're laid out. Uh, even more artificial how we lay them out for uh, the, our weeks together. And this one might feel kind of strange. I got Sarah because I knew that Sarah can say really complicated names. Uh, but in, in a lot of ways, this is a little bit of a, a strange passage, right? Two weeks ago, we get the grand master story of all of Philippians, the, the beginning of chapter 2, when we, 
when Paul says, if you feel all these things, if you've been unified in the spirit, uh, if, if you have any compassion, make my joy complete by having the same mind, and it looks like Christ's mind. And here's what that looks like. And he lays this hymn out. Uh, the early church um, didn't even know how to say it, so they had to sing it. And they didn't know how to, to write it, so they had to write a story about it. And, and, and so two weeks ago, amazing, awesome. As I, as I said then, that feels as a preacher like an Easter sermon. Like there's a lot of pressure that you don't mess that up because it's so big. Last week, we get what, what we deemed the world's worst middle school football chaplain passage about proceed with fear and trembling because that's not you want you want to tell them that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You don't want to say work out your faith in fear and trembling. This week, we basically get what amounts to maybe on the surface seems like a grocery list for Paul, like uh, marginalia, little things that he's adding on so that they know that the logistics are handled. Here's who I sent to you. Here's who I'm commending. They were really sad about that because you couldn't come to me. He came to me for you. All these things. But I think if we look closer in this, we, we start to see some really interesting logic that's starting to work out in real lives that might also work out in our lives. This, this logic from that master story, then a couple weeks and, and several verses removed, starts to work its way into not only mission, but, but the means of mission, which I think is family. Uh, let, let me say what I mean by that. So I think God always works the gospel, the good news, the way that God has created and is recreating, renewing this creation is by family. Why do I think that? Because it started out as a family. We, we might know it as the Holy Family or the Trinity, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relations that, that even hints at this emptying that we find in Philippians 2, that Christ might empty himself and take on the form of a servant. It, we, we see uh, before the creation of the universe, not needing anything, we see this community creating community together. That's wild. <laughs> and we all, like, you, you guys, if you could see yourselves right now, you're just like. But that is wild, and that is, like, an unprecedented thing to say that God is unified in community. This is, this is a story that is completely unlike how we would most likely write it and how often we, we even in our worship, pervert it or uh, think more lowly of it than we should. Like, this is not the story of a removed deity. This is not the story of top-down management. This is not the story of violence or coercion or unabated unilateral power. Like, there's current scientific myths that are saying that, and there are ancient myths that talk about the way that the universe was created was out of divine struggle and strife and power and coercion. That's not our story. Our story is a, is a God of grace that creates out of the outpouring and overflowing of that grace that God has for God's self. It's grace all the way down to the bottom. 
It's a, it's God. If if we're going to put a mindset on God, because Philippians says have that mindset of Christ. If we're going to put a mindset on God, it is this grace mindset of abundance and overflow. And then that that like infinite grace mindset then gets gets isolated, gets gets localized when God calls Abraham and and Abraham's family. God continues his mission through a family, a family on mission. In the call to Abraham, even before Abraham had a kid or it seemed like he could be able to have a kid, it's called, it's called a Sarah who answers God's call by laughing at God because it's so laughable and insane that, that this is how God would work. The call to Abraham is that he might be blessed in order to be a blessing. We see this grace mindset then get translated to this family, this abundance mindset. Your, your blessing isn't going to start and end with you, but your blessing is going to move through you into the world and to the ends of the earth, a family on mission. That's why, like, our, as a church, one of our, like, quintessential Bible passages that we always come back to, that if you're around long enough, you'll, you'll know well and might even be sick of, is Isaiah 61. Oaks of righteousness planted for the display of God's splendor. Later on, there's this strange moment where uh, Isaiah, in this hopeful vision towards the future, says, oh, and when God is redeeming this world through you, strangers will tend your flocks. Foreigners will be in your gardens, which that's pretty threatening for the way we mostly figure out because that that works us out of a job but that's actually the the logical conclusion and the movement of this family on mission is from a family to the earth from a family to all the families of the earth again it's this abundant mindset it's this mindset that we don't really do well when we try to like systematize it or talk about things like election like we we uh, election means God chose you, and God chose Abraham, right? We we assume that that is like a um, kind of like in kindergarten when you're picking teams and you number off like that's election one two three four, and then all the ones go over here and all the twos over there. That's not really how election works in this family on mission. Election more works like do you remember also in kindergarten the first time you got your hands on a magnet and a bunch of a, a bunch of iron filings, and then. You put the magnet in, and it picked up some filings. And then you, you dip it down again, and the filings go onto the filings, go onto the filings. Like there's this, this, uh, the, this abundance and this grace and this outpouring and overflowing and, and this, this, uh, this continual gathering that is happening. And that's how God elects, through a family towards the ends of the earth. I remember uh, when my when I was taking Old Testament, uh, my Old Testament professor Ellen Davis, she would she made us do way too many map uh, assignments. Like you get in seminary, you're really excited, especially at Duke. You think you're really smart for being at Duke, and and you take this class for semester, and you sit down. And she tells you, Friday, you're going to have a quiz, and I'm going to give you a piece of paper, and you're, you're going to have to draw a map on it. And that's how you're going to be assessed. The reason for this, the reason why she would make us draw maps, like 
throughout most of the semester. And if you have her, she'll still do this. The reason why she likes to teach with a map behind her, and you can put this map up, Brian, um, is to show how small Israel is. I think there's a circle for it. Like, so often we assume, and it, it helps us, it builds into this mindset that God um, didn't do something really strange and bizarre by choosing Israel. We assume Israel has, like, power and uh, can do whatever Israel wants. We assume Israel is kind of like an empire, especially when they start to choose kings. But Israel actually is not an empire. Israel is, like, surrounded by empires, right? That's Egypt. That's Babylon. Those are the Hittites. Like, Israel is so surrounded by empires empire, if they're not careful, they're going to be absorbed by empire. And that's normally when it starts to go wrong for Israel. When Israel stops acting like Israel, it's because they want to act like empire. They don't want to act like a family. They want to act like some sort of system, some, some, sort, of, some, some sort of militarized entity instead of a family calling people unto themselves because they're calling them into God's family. Before, and this is, this, is, this is chronically wrong for Israel, and, and you'll see why this is important for a minute. When, when Israel is, struggles most, when they're most unfaithful, they forget that before Israel was Israel, before Jews were Jews, they were Gentiles, basically. Because God plucked them out and said, I'm going to work through you. Not because of what they did. Not, not even because Abraham and Sarah were good at having kids. They were terrible at having kids, by the way, God, because God was going to work through them. So they do well to remember, and that's all of, uh, all of like the spiritual uh, advice that God continues to give them. Remember. Remember you were called. Remember that God brought you out of, out of Egypt. Remember, 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 and remember that you're a family, and you're only a family because God made you a family. And then we get into the life of Jesus, and we see this grace mindset, this abundance mindset, continue to, to work its way out into Jesus' Christ mindset, that emptying mindset. We see Jesus then assemble a new family around him. And it looks so strange. People don't know what they're looking at. They don't know what it means for Jesus to have all these characters around a table that shouldn't be around a table together. Look even at the disciples, for instance. You have brothers with zealous, zealous like wrestler names, <laughs> the sons of thunder, because they like are literally going around trying to bring about revolution. This would be like, like anarchists these days. At the table with a tax collector, <laughs> you know, who is, I guess, a modern-day, like, Wall Street, like, one percenter, right? Like, together, following Jesus, figuring this stuff out. You have someone inclined towards violence, uh, and we, we get that story in Luke's Gospel. Peter cuts a guy's ear off, even as Jesus, for the joy set before him, goes to take on the cross, and Christ says, put your swords away, that's enough, Christ is forming this new family around him. Jesus, even around him, has someone who will ultimately deny him in Peter, and then he'll restore him. 
but also someone who will ultimately betray him and send him to the cross in Judas. Jesus is gathering this family. And it's, it, this is able to happen because it's this master story starting to work itself out into real life. I think, uh, I think we use that story, that story of Jesus being in the very nature of God and not considering equality with God as something to be exploited but making himself nothing, and then pulling people around him and say, like, you can make yourself nothing and be a part of this family. I want you, but I want you to join in this. I, I think we let that guide us. We let that guide, that, that's kind of our, our rubric for if something is God's family on mission. We can look at it and, and we can be skeptical of any sort of like theology or any sort of program to help someone or to improve their life that doesn't follow this master story and this pattern of emptying over and over of, of being with like Jesus and of humility. If it doesn't look like Jesus and it doesn't sound like Jesus, it's probably not Jesus and it's probably not of God. This is the outworking and then it's also the reproduction of this life with God that we started with at the top, that grace mindset, the community from which Jesus came. Jesus is making families that look and feel and act like his family. This then works itself out like Paul's colleague, who we just talked about, Peter, then writes in 1 Peter 2, he's able to call us, call the people that he's speaking to a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God. He says, once you weren't a people, but now you're a people because God made you that. And then the interesting thing happens, and I'm drawing a little bit on our experience this summer. We've been doing a mustard seed group for young families, and we'll conclude today, and we've been doing a story about family on mission in um, the material that we're using uh, by 3DM makes this really interesting observation that in the Bible, we're, we're used to this idea of discipleship. Like most of us, how many, how many in some way grew up in a church that talked about the Great Commission? Like certain churches, like that's, we talked about that earlier in, in the study. Like some churches, like that's what you thought, you didn't know the Sermon on the Mount, but you knew the Great Commission, right? But the interesting observation they make is this shift in our Bibles. And, and I looked at it, and I think it plays out. We hear these, this parting shot from Jesus. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, because authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this original, eternal community, family, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you even to the end of the age. But then, and like most churches rightfully so, are really excited about discipleship and making disciples. But strangely enough, shortly thereafter this, the term disciple all but disappears from our New Testaments. Is that a strange thing? Like, Joe, do you know about this? Joe. But... <laughs> the, the author of this study, though, ma makes an interesting uh, point or observation or, or theory. It's the reason why they stop calling 
followers of Jesus disciples is because they start calling them family members. They start calling them sons. They start calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. The logical outworking of making someone a disciple, especially in a Gentile uh, Roman culture, was to bring someone into your family. You would initially have a tutor, and then you would be glued to your parents' side and learn their trade. So if we're going to be following Jesus, we're going to be brothers, and we're, we're going to be sisters, we're going to be sons, and we're going to be daughters of Christ. We're going to be right by his side. I think that plays itself out just in this, this like grocery list logistics letter uh, that's our passage for today, in a few snippets. First, we see Timothy, right? Timothy pops up. Timothy's relatively uh, known character in the Bible. We see him first pop up in Acts 16. They also have two letters, um, presumably from Paul to Timothy. Um, we, we know a couple things about Timothy. We know that Timothy is the result of massive faith of both his mom and his grandma, uh, Lois and Eunice. Lois was his grandma, Eunice was his mom. And we know that they were converts towards Christianity by Paul's first missionary journey. So then Paul comes back years later and he meets Timothy, the product of his earlier work or God's earlier work through him. And, and so we see uh, even in Acts 16, as Paul starts to describe Timothy, he describes him um, as a multiracial kid. His, his mom was a Jew and his father was Greek and presumably not a believer. So to, if, if that describes similarly any of your households, take heart, like this is a thing from the beginning, uh, a household that, that was kind of mixed and a household that had to navigate challenging questions of faith and how that was going to work. But also present even early on uh, are strong female members of faith working their faith into another generation. And that's, that's such a true story for the early church, and it's such a true story for, for every church, and including this church, that, that women have a massive role to play in how people learn the grammar of following Jesus. But we see in Timothy a few things. We see this family expanding. We, we see that, that Paul considers Timothy a son, is the word he used. He, he, he uses this in his letters to Timothy, too. He says, Timothy, you're like a son to me. Even as Paul in some other letters talks about um, imitate me as I imitate Christ, follow me as I follow Christ, this goes even a little beyond that. Paul's no, no longer a tutor for Timothy, but Paul is like a father for Timothy. We see this family that is continuing to expand the gospel in their place. We also, an interesting thing about, about Timothy is that when Timothy became uh, a convert, a follower of Jesus, Paul made Timothy get circumcised even later in life. We, we know that from Acts and we know that from the letter. We, what we also know is that from, Paul did not make Titus uh, get circumcised because Titus wasn't a Jew. He didn't have any Jewish an ancestry. So why this is important, always take a chance as a preacher, or always take the chance as a preacher to talk about circumcision if it comes up. 
Why this is important is because Titus didn't have to become Jewish to become Christian. But also, Paul advises Timothy to do it because Paul recognizes in Timothy this, this privilege that is present in Timothy. You see, in this specific, very concrete, even medical situation, how this Christ story of emptying, abandoning privilege, not considering equality with God as something to be grasped, works itself out in that Timothy's privilege as a Jew has to see its logical end so that he's going to get circumcised. Titus isn't similar, similarly privileged. Titus doesn't have to get circumcised. It's, it's amazing, these family matters, these like home economics that are happening because of this Jesus story. Then we also find um, Epaphroditus. Uh, in, in, in Epaphroditus, we, we again see family language. He, Paul calls him a brother, uh, an Adelphon, which it's like Philadelphia, brotherly love. And that's important because when, when Paul's calling someone a brother, it, it, it should automatically ring in your ear that, that this has something to do with Jesus. Like Paul's consideration is not that this guy had the same mom. That didn't happen. Not that this guy even has the same interests or looks or anything like them, but he is Paul's brother because Jesus is Paul's brother, and they're united to the same Jesus. They're able to be brothers because Jesus was our elder brother. Do you remember that story from Luke's gospel, Luke 15? The story of the two brothers, the lost brother and the brother that stayed at home. And, and if we're reading well, we, we move beyond the, the so-called prodigal that went to the far land, and we keep our eyes at home, and we see this trouble on the home front, this older brother who cannot stand that his younger brother not only left but got to come back. But then... Jesus is telling that story, even while Jesus is reversing and subverting and enacting that story as the older brother that does welcome that long-lost brother back. So Epaphroditus is able to be Paul's brother because Jesus is Paul's brother, and he's ours too. Paul also calls Epaphroditus my co-worker. This is an interesting word, like, we all have co-workers. That's not necessarily a modern term of endearment. That's normally the exact opposite. We, we gripe about our co-workers. But when Paul calls Epaphroditus his co-worker in the gospel, it's this explosive word, sooner gone. Like the same word in there is this, uh, is this word for work, ergos, but it's also this, this word for what God's doing, this power, this energy, inner gas, right? This, this thing that has happened that, if we remember last week, we read that God is asking us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling as God works in you and works out through you. So to call Epaphroditus his co-worker, Paul is saying, you're involved with me in this work that God is working in you and is working out through you in fear and trembling. That we might be co-workers with each other in this gospel, that, that we might be tapped into this divine energy, again, flowing out of that grace mindset, divine family on mission together. And then I think it's, it's awesome, Paul calls him a, a 
co-soldier <laughs> in the faith. Like the, if you're like me, this kind of like makes me nervous, right? Especially like I assume everyone in this room kind of in the backdrop has, ha- has a little bit of nervousness about talking about a family on mission because uh, so often this gets kind of twisted and perverted into this sort of like um, it's one thing to be a nation, but it's a whole different thing to be nationalistic. Um, it, uh, I, I hope you, I hope you're seeing how that is like like a twist and a and a like parasitic on this this idea that God makes a family to send a family on mission that includes and pulls other others in. So he calls Epaphroditus a co- co-soldier, and again. I think we always define our terms by, by what we know about the gospel, by what we know about this master story. In, in, Timothy, in the second letter to Timothy, Paul says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier in Christ. So somehow being a soldier, being a co-fighter for this gospel doesn't involve victory or violence. It involves suffering well because of the good news. Or, like, uh, I think historically about how this has worked itself out, like how because of Jesus, because of this master story, people who once were soldiers still somehow remain soldiers, but their entire vocation gets flipped. Their entire vocation, like a bowl, gets emptied out because of Christ's self-emptying. Think about Martin of Tours, who was a 4th century bishop. I think there's a slide for this. He was, he was a, a, a soldier, and then he became a Christian. He says, hitherto I have served you as a soldier. Allow me now to become a soldier to God. I am a soldier of Christ. It is not permissible for me to fight. But he stayed in the army. <laughs> he was a conscientious objector, but he stayed in the army, and he served others, but he wouldn't fight. This is... This is to be a co-soldier with Paul, to be a co-soldier with Christ means to lay your life down, to, to stay in that good fight, but to lay your life down. He also uses these words, he says Epaphroditus is a messenger. He's a caregiver. He talks about these, these compassion words of the ways he's felt for you. And then uh, at the end of, of talking about Epaphroditus, he, he, he says, he gave, he gave up his life for you. And again, that's a word that we don't get to see in our translations, but it's this word like parabalani, uh, or the parab- parabaleo, but then it becomes this, this group in the first century of people called the parabalani, people who lay their lives down. And they're all Christians, mostly converts. M- most of them die because... They minister to people with diseases that no one else will minister with. So he talks about Epaphroditus as this one who gives up his life for you. And, and it's so cool because when God works that way, when God works through families on mission, he calls others to give up their lives for others. Like that's how God is working. That's how God worked through Epaphroditus. That's how he's working through us. A great specific example of this is Justin Martyr, who is a first century, as you might have guessed, martyr. I, <laughs> I spared you guys many of the pictures show him getting his head chopped off. But this is a, a little more uh, formal portrait, I, I suppose, head intact. He says, 
We formerly treasured money and possessions more than anything else, now, and now we hand over everything we have to a treasury for all, and we share it with everyone who needs it. We who formerly hated and murdered one another now truly live and share the same table. We pray for our enemies, and we try to win those who hate us. When Paul says that Epaphroditus gave his life over, this is what he's talking about. Do you, you see this? this? This is not only giving up your stuff, but this is allowing your life to be completely and radically flipped upside down in the way that you normally operate in the logic that you're living under. And finally, Paul, uh, even as, even as he, he makes some kind of programming notes about when you'll get to see him and hopefully you'll get to see him, he, he, he tells them in the midst of all this, in the midst of Epaphroditus suffering and almost dying, to rejoice. He says it again twice. Paul is always repeating himself. He says, rejoice, rejoice with me. Somehow this, this reconfigured family, this reconfigured mission is also a reconfigured joy. It's a joy that, that can spring up in surprising places. It's a joy that, that actually grows out of suffering. It's a joy that learns how to sing like really joyous hymns and minor keys. They sound different. The words are the same, but they sound different. Or like we did this morning to, to sing a really hopeful, triumphant joy song, even after a litany of, of sorrow. And somehow, like, I think that can go wrong, but I also think it, those words can be so much more enriched by having gone through that. So Paul redefines joy. He says again in Second Timothy, recalling your tears, I learned to see you so that I might be filled with joy. Can we see this, how stitched together suffering and joy are, how, how stitched together sorrow and hope are. There's joy in struggle. There's joy in hospitality, receiving others. And there's joy in being joined into God's family, being part of the hope and the healing. Will you guys, will you guys pray with me? Uh, Father, I thank you for uh, these words. I thank you uh, that they they show real lives uh, trying to to figure out um, grace and joy and hope. We thank you that they show us um, how you work in this world and how we're included in that work. Lord, give us courage that we that courage that we might empty ourselves that we don't even leave a little on the bottom that we might empty ourselves let that we let you flip us over, um, that you might reconfigure our imaginations and our hopes. Um, Lord, help us, help us give ourselves to you um, that we might find ourselves in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.